so. This morning it's time to turn to the fifth of the five obscurations and the fifth of the five dhyana factors that serves as its natural antidote or antibody. But before going there, I'd like to offer just a footnote to the last one, the one we discussed yesterday morning, namely the role of bliss or this pritti for overcoming excitation and anxiety. Bliss may be not the best translation in all contexts, especially when it says bliss. That's, that's pretty high level. Like, okay, wh- how long do I need to wait for that? Whereas this term doesn't necessarily have that degree of power to it. I think probably a more appropriate term here would simply be enjoyment. So you may or may not have experienced bliss in your mindfulness of breathing or other shamatha practices, but uh, have you yet had a session that you enjoyed, or at least a moment or two? (laughs) That was a good second there. (laughs) Oh, how sweet the memory. (laughs) And so enjoyment. Well, this is, this is kind of, once again, obviously true. If one considers excitation as the mind is flying off in all diff- different directions, being impelled by desires for this, that, and the other thing, and then anxiety, then it's quite clear that if you're really enjoying what you're doing, then the tendency to wander off in pursuit of happiness with craving a desire or falling into anxiety would naturally be overcome. And there are all kinds of mundane examples of this. Again, I fly a lot. I see people on long airplane flights engrossed in their novels, for example, one of those paperback thrillers, whatever. And when they're really into the novel, you can imagine that their mind isn't wandering. You know? And they're not thinking about their income taxes or other things of anxiety and so forth and so on. This is a wow, wow. They're totally into it. And they're enjoying the novel. So excitation and anxiety don't arise as long as they're still really focused there. And it's because they're enjoying it. Whereas, you know, if you're just studying something you have to study that you don't find interesting, then the mind wanders all over the place. So, in a similar fashion, now for shamatha, rather than setting an expectation, like, okay, how long do I have to wait until bliss comes in? Or I had bliss a week ago last Tuesday, where or where have you gone? When will you come and visit again? Rather think more modestly. Remember that old, who was it? Which, 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 which group was it? Saying, if you can't be with the one you love, love the one you're with. <laughs> Remember that one? <laughs> well, it's kind of like that. If you can't get the bliss you don't have, Enjoy the meditation you do have. Right? And then you can say, yeah, but what's to enjoy? I'm on stage one. And I got rumination up the yazoo. And I'm restless and my knees hurt. And my mind's not very clear. Which part of this is the enjoyable part? (laughs) That's not a rhetorical question. I'm going to tell you which is the enjoyable part. That's the enjoyable part. Breathing out. And it's taking satisfaction in little things. A little little quip from modern science, from psychology, the psychology of happiness. Another parallel. I'm wandering a little bit, but I like to wander. You notice it. Studies have been done about happy people. Whether or not they're practicing Dharma, I don't think that term comes up a a whole lot in modern psychological studies of happiness. Maybe it does, I don't know. But they found that when they've done polls or interviews with people who are just generally really very cheerful, happy, they found something common among them, and that is that just generally happy people find a whole bunch of little things to be happy about. They're not waiting for the lottery. They're not waiting for the the big one. They're just finding many little things throughout the course of the day to take delight in. And then this is kind of like oil and paper. It just starts to seep into the rest of the day. Okay? And so finding, taking satisfaction in little things. Well, how about even you know, if you think you're the worst meditator here, like most of, peop- most of you do, you know? and, and me too, I'm part of the club. You know? 
considering the hours I put in, I thought, man, there's sharp, medium, dull, and utterly retarded. <laughs> That's me down there. But at least, you know, I'm still at it. <laughs> still doing it, you know. <laughs> haven't, lost, haven't lost heart. Um, but finding little things to take satisfaction in. And that is when you breathe out. You can take some satisfaction in just releasing the rumination of the moment. And taking satisfaction, not a whole lot, but enough, that, oh, that's relaxing. And that relaxing all the way through the end, which you've heard me say so many times. And then that patient resting there, if there's something of an interval, an interim exhalation, and then finding, oh, how nice. The next breath is flowing in of its own accord. I didn't need to reach out and lunge for it. I didn't need to yank it in. I didn't need to exert myself. It just flowed in. How nice. One can enjoy breathing out and then receiving the gift of the in-breath. And you can enjoy that. Enjoy just releasing the rumination. You say, well, who knows how the 24-minute session will go. But that breath, that was a pretty darn good breath. Let's do it right now. Let's just have one breath, okay? Just one. But let it be a good one. There. Now, that wasn't so hard, was it? Just to enjoy a breath. And so among the three qualities to derive some enjoyment, let alone bliss, too big a term, but some enjoyment of, among the three qualities, really learning how to release, to relax, to find ease and comfort in your body and mind, and to be satisfied. There's more to come. That's not the whole movie. That's not the whole show, but that's a nice start. And it's got to be in the right direction. If, if, if enlightenment's that way, this has got to be in the, in the right direction. The opposite's got to be in the opposite direction. Okay? And then, with that deepening sense of relaxation, then slowly, as you really do unwind and release, then you might, might find that there's a bit more composure, a little bit more continuity, a little bit more peace and quiet in the mind, because the rumination is thinning out. You get some nice intervals between the rumination, the spouts, the bursts of rumination, and finding, oh, it's, not, it's nice not only to be relaxed, but to have a bit of inner peace, a bit of quiet that's not dull. That's nice. You can enjoy that, too. And then among the three, the easiest one to enjoy is when you're saying, oh, the mind's quite clear, quite bright. That's nice. And so enjoying acts as a natural antidote to excitation, which is always looking for something you don't have, heading off on forays, expeditions, in pursuit of some kind of hedonic pleasure, or just in sheer habit. So I would suggest that we don't have to wait for the seventh stage. And, as, and I'll, I stand by everything I said yesterday in terms of the value of refle- reflecting upon the disadvantages of just being snared in the five obscurations and the magnificent opportunities, the advantages, the benefits of actually achieving shamatha, that's certainly worth going to in terms of discursive meditation. But let's not overlook the possibility, which is really like today, even in the next session, of taking some satisfaction in the practice itself and finding, oh, I don't need to wait. This is already good. So that's for the fourth one. Then we move on to the fifth one. Okay, And the, uh, the fifth one is afflictive uncertainty, debilitating uncertainty. Being uncertain about some things is just naturally insane. That is, what, what do you think? Do you think it's going to clear up this afternoon? It's going to be sunny, shot, sunny skies, or do you think it's going to be more rain? Gosh, I don't know. But that's not paining me at all. That's not an afflictive uncertainty. I'm uncertain because I don't know, and I have no way of knowing. And so there it is. Well, I live a long life or a short life, or a long, you know, not, can't, can't be that short. I've already made it to 62. Yoo-hoo! You know? But we'll, you know, I don't know. I don't know. 
So there we are. I'm, set. I'm uncertain. I don't know. That's not afflictive. But now let's take four examples. And there's only one of many examples, since there's a big emphasis here on shamatha. Big question. If I practice shamatha, if I continue practicing shamatha, when I'm not compelled to come to these, these, these meditations in the morning and afternoon, when I have some real freedom, <laughs> um, can I get anywhere among those nine stages? Can I actually move along that? Or am I just going to be stuck spinning my wheels like a jeep just spinning its wheels in mud? And just... <laughs> 24 minutes gone by. <laughs> mud all over the place. Did you go anywhere? No, just dug myself deeper into a trench of dullness and excitation. So, am I completely hopeless? That would be a really good question. Am I completely hopeless, so retarded for shamatha that it doesn't matter how hard I try or how, I, how hard I try to relax? I like that phrasing. <laughs> the Germans especially. <laughs> I'm sorry, but you Germans, you're... Hopeless. <laughs> but you know I don't mean it. That you're hopeless, I mean. That's, that, that's what yeah, you know, I don't mean. It. So, there it is, just on this basic thing. Can I, can I get anywhere at all in this practice? Or am I always going to be coming back to stage one? Or, if there is such a thing, stage zero? <laughs> you know, like... <laughs> Stage minus one? I don't know. How far back do we go? And then, the, and then we can ask the, the grander question. Is it possible for a person like me, myself included, to actually achieve shamatha? And like me, well, how about, okay, if one is a Westerner, how about Westerners? If one is simply living in the 21st century, well, how about anybody? Tibetans, Bhutanese, Mongolians, Indians, so forth. Can anybody achieve shamatha nowadays, or is that just a thing of the past? You know, is it just, are the times so degenerate? And you will find people who believe this. The times are now so degenerate that you, it's really the time of realization is finished. Anybody ever heard this before? Uh, the time of realization is finished, so all you can really hope for is to study well, be an ethical person, and then dedicate your merits to a really good future life. So that could be, if one had a, a gravestone for Buddha Dharma, that's what could be carved on it. <laughs> Rest in peace, Buddha Dharma. You, know, you should have been here during the good old days. You know, but you missed it by that much. How many de years or, or decades or centuries? So the, it is suitable to be uncertain about that which is uncertain. And then there's the natural remedy, the antibody. And that is, it's called vichara in Sanskrit, or chup in Tibetan. And it means careful investigation, close investigation. So not just simply checking it out, but checking it out in depth, with continuity, with, you know, carrying through. And say, like Sherlock Holmes, right, to solve a case. He doesn't just kind of look at the evidence and say, well, maybe this. You track it down until you get something decisive, right? That's this. Or in the Theravada analogy I mentioned earlier, they call this sustained thought, sustained attention. And that's like the reverberation of a, bill, of a bell after you've struck it with applied thought, or applied, an applied attention. Then the lingering, the reverberation, like that. That's the vichara, okay? And that is the natural antidote. And this absolutely makes totally good sense to me. And that is, it is through sustained investigation. We might, to use a modern term, call it research. Rigorous, sustained, definitive research into issues about which we're uncertain. This is how science progresses, evolves, develops. As an issue comes up, the scientists are uncertain. There's this hypothesis, there's this hypothesis. And then if there are scientific hypotheses, then they find some meat to put them to the test, and then they move beyond their uncertainty, and they come to some consensual knowledge. I mean, it's just a fantastic strategy that's worked incredibly well for a certain domain of reality, the objective, physical, and, and quantifiable, for 400 years. It's been spectacular, spectacular.
Okay? So, but now we're applying this to the subjective, the qualitative, the non-physical, although we can be uncertain about anything, perhaps. But about, for example, the shamatha. Well, let's take the easier one first. Can I get, any, can I get anywhere here at all? Well, check it out. Is there some reason? Do I have brain damage? Am I genetically a mutant? You know, I'm one of those anti-shamatha subspecies. Is there any reason to believe that you know, I'm unlike so many others who really you know, benefit from the practice? And then, positively speaking, I mean, you really solve this by sustained practice, doing it intelligently, learning the methods, seeing that you're practicing them correctly, you're looking for the outer, the inner conditions, and then seeing for yourself, continuity. Just see, can I get any benefit from this at all? And frankly, eight weeks really is a fair, a, a fair, fair period. If after eight weeks here of doing your best, attending our morning and afternoon sessions, applying yourself as well as you can, you know, to however, however many hours of sessions per day, if after eight weeks you look back and say, boy, I just got no benefit out of those practices at all, then I would say find another teacher, find another set of practices. Because eight weeks is a really fair trial. Yeah, that's fair enough, right? And then you should know. That, so that uncertainty should be, should be dispelled. Either, yep, for sure, those practices I don't get any benefit from. I gave it eight weeks. That's a really fair trial. And I got just no good benefit. I was just spinning my wheels the whole time. That's a possibility, in which case this is not the right teacher or those are not the right practices. And there are plenty of other teachers and plenty of other practices. So I would suggest, you know, head out to greener pastures. But if over eight weeks, and, this, and I found eight weeks turns out to be a really timely period, um, it does tend almost universally to be a, a, a sufficient time that people can really see for themselves whether or not achieving shamatha, that can remain uncertain. But can these practices, are these practices beneficial? Having put them into practice for eight weeks, have I derived any benefit at all? And so see for yourself. But I have been doing this for some years now, and I find people almost universally find the answer is yes. So that uncertainty is quelled. <coughs> but then we go to the deeper issue, which then has such import, such implications for people in this 21st century reaching the path, the path of accumulation, for example, and proceeding on, developing and gaining authentic insight by way of vipassana, developing genuine bodhicitta, and so on. Is it possible for people, the likes of us, to achieve shamatha? And the likes of us, we can say, okay, us, us Westerners, but then again, if you've traveled much, you see exactly where does the West stop? You know, is it, if, if Euro-America is the West, is Hawaii still the West? How about Australia? I, have, I can answer that one. Yes, definitely. Australia is the West. It's not anywhere else. And so it's, what, Southwest? I don't know, but it's definitely the West. But Singapore, I mean, between Sydney and Singapore, is one of these the West and one of these not the West? And how about Taiwan, Taipei? How about Hong Kong? Is that the West? And then I've been to Ulaanbaatar, the capital of, of Mongolia. So frankly, the West is, it starts in California, and it goes around to uh, California. <laughs> it's west all the way around. You notice that, yeah. And so that's the modern world. And frankly, having just spent some time, you know, a couple of days in Dharamsala, India, it's small, but it's a metropolis. It's crazy. I mean, it's so dense. You have these multi-story hotels all over the place and milling people, and it's really pandemonium. I mean, it's, it's a little city, all bustling, bustling, bustling. So people living in Dharmazala, let alone Delhi and so forth. So is it possible for Tibetans, for Mongolians, for Singaporeans, Australians, Americans, and so forth, is that possible or not? And then that, there's an uncertainty there. And the, and the stakes are high. The stakes are high. Because if it's simply impossible, then we need to, then we need to recognize that and not get our hopes up where hopes are going to be in vain, and say, okay, then it's not, a, not possible to achieve the path, not really possible to gain profound and irreversible realization in Dzogchen, stage of generation or completion, not possible to achieve bodhicitta or direct realization of emptiness. All of those are impossible now, right? Because shamatha is necessary for, for everything I just said, according to the greatest teachers of all the traditions. And so since shamatha is impossible, all of those are impossible, so what's left over? And then, well, there is something left over. Be an ethical person. You can make prayers to be born in a pure land. In other words, you have a religion. 
be, be ethical, do your devotions, your rituals, and pray for a good rebirth. And I think if, if we consensually came to that conclusion, I think the, the Buddhas would weep. So anyone who draws that conclusion without compelling evidence is simply making a self-fulfilling prophecy. Believe it, and lo and behold, it's true. It's true because you believe it. Or as His Holiness commented in a different context, he said the situation is hopeless, whatever the situation is. Self-determination, human rights for the Tibetan people in Tibet, etc. The situation is hopeless exactly in that moment when you give up hope. Until that moment, it's not hopeless. But as soon as you get to the point, ah, it's hopeless, then it is. Congratulations, you've just put yourself into a prison and thrown the key away because you've decided it's hopeless. So as for As for the freedom of the Tibetan people, the freedom to practice their dharma without fear of punishment, without fear of political indoctrination, without fear of torture, without fear of having their monasteries bulldozed when they get too large, it becomes hopeless only when we give up hope. That the Dalai Lama's never done, and I shall certainly never do it myself. Okay. So then for Shamatha, research. And this is the beauty of Shamatha. It's so transparent. There's nothing mysterious about it. Laid out by such great masters as Tsongkhapa and many, many others. Nine stages. Okay, which, exactly which stage do you think is the impossible one? Where does the doubt really come in? Stage one to two, or three to four, or six to seven? Eight to nine, which one? Which one? Break it down like an engineering problem into smaller pieces and say, where does the uncertainty really kick in? Right. Then research, investigate. What methods do people find most beneficial? This is why, this is the, the, the fundamental motivation behind a group of my colleagues and myself wishing to establish, do everything we can to create a constellation, a garland, of contemplative observatories around the world so that people who are really devoting themselves to opening the door to the path by achieving shamatha and then proceeding along the path, that we find what works, what works through sustained investigation, sustained research, what works. And moreover, the more the, more the merrier, because with shamatha, like with music, art, science, and so forth and so on, some people are just going to be more gifted than others. It's just, just the way things are. But the, even the not-so-gifted people can still develop. Gips is slower. Okay, big deal. But they can still develop. So it's not like, okay, can you or can you not? It's how, how well can you? But the more people we had involved who really are passionately committed to this, there are bound to be some who are very gifted. And there are. I've met them. And so let's be, keep an eye on them. And then they can come back and tell us, okay, what is working? What is working? So research investigation, what kind of environment is really optimal, which practice is really optimal. Is it better to be practicing entirely in solitude so you're not having any distraction from outside, or is it better to have a small cluster, maybe three or four companions? Or is there some real groove energy by having 20, 40, 40 people together, perhaps in smaller clusters amongst them, but a larger kind of group effort? Uh, is that more optimal? Is it necessary to have an experienced teacher there right with you, or is it enough to communicate by Skype and so forth, or even email. So I think it's really one of the grand questions about which it's worthy to be uncertain, but uncertain in the most vigorous, determined way to dispel uncertainty through research, through investigation. If this were hopeless, then there's no doubt in my mind that His Holiness Dalai Lama would not be encouraging 
and really supporting the establishment of a retreat center, a contemplative research facility near Bangalore, which is solely, according to him, his wish, solely going to be focusing on Shamadeva Vipassana. He wouldn't do that. Why? Set everybody up for disappointment? I'm setting up a research lab so you can all fail. You know? And we'll give, we'll give her our best shot to raise money for it, find land, get the support of the Indian government, and so forth, because we're really eager to get you all there and then fall flat on your faces and everybody will watch you all catastrophically fail. That's not in his mind. Impossible. So if he thought this were impossible, there's no way he would do this. No way. So... So let's dispel uncertainty the good old-fashioned way. Investigating. Just like the scientists have, the great contemplatives of the past have, the great contemplatives of the present do. Let's face the uncertainty squarely and then get an answer. So, that's how research, sustained research, or vichara, vichara, Subtle investigation dispels uncertainty. You move from skepticism, you move from uncertainty to certain knowledge. Case closed. There's the way forward. And, oh yeah, I will never accept it case closed on the negative side. Not me. No way. There's a story, it may or may not be true, and I don't really care much one way or another, but pertains to Edison, Edison, the great American inventor. And the story goes that as he was trying to create the first electric light bulb, he went through, what, 2,000 trials, something like two, 3,000 trials, trying, 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 trying. And some journalist came to him and said, Mr. Edison, I've heard you've run 3,000 trials of trying to create an electric light bulb and you failed on every single one. Isn't there a point you just want to give up? Maybe it just can't be done. I mean, when is enough enough? And Thomas Edison allegedly, in this mythical story, which might actually be true, he said, I have not failed 3,000 times. I've succeeded 3,000 times in finding how not to develop a light bulb. So some of you are now becoming very familiar with how not to achieve shamatha. <laughs> Congratulations. Congratulations. You might, might, want, might, might want to keep a log. This doesn't work. This doesn't work. <laughs> then we can compile. Tanya put a Mind Center's 500-page book on how not to achieve shamatha, <laughs> written by experts. And then, of course, shortly after that, he succeeded, and it was one more fabulous invention he made, electric light bulb. So there it is. So it's uncertain. But I refuse the certainty that it's not possible, because that just shows we haven't been trying long enough. And I'll die that way. If that's the case, I'll die that way, rather than before dying. Close the door and have a self-fulfilling prophecy. Not me. Never. So, it's Saturday morning and it's time to move on to the fourth of the four measurables. Even-heartedness, equanimity. The grand culmination, the celebration of the four measurables. And as we attend to others, as they appear to us, other people, for example, it will always be true, I imagine, that some will appear to us as more virtuous and some will be less virtuous. Some friendlier, some unfriendlier. Some with heavier mental afflictions and some lighter mental afflictions. Some will be physically attractive and some will be physically not so attractive. That's going to be around probably as long as the human race is around, that people will just appear different. They'll manifest differently, right? And that means some of the appearances, whether it's in terms of just sheer attractiveness or whether it's virtue versus vice, 
that some naturally will be more appealing than others as they arise to us objectively. So in that regard, it is uneven. It's uneven because we have, you know, mass killers on the one hand and then you have great saints on the other hand. And they're just not the same. And people who are genocidal, their behavior is not agreeable and those who are incredibly benevolent, that is. And so in the midst of this tremendous diversity, not only of appearances, but how people actually are, it's been true for all of human history and it's for the foreseeable future, people are going to be cropping up in all different varieties. You know? And so how in the midst of all that do we possibly have an even-heartedness? That one taste of attending to each one equally when we're so obviously not equal. Greater virtue, less virtue, more intelligent, less intelligent, more kind, less kind, more attractive, less attractive, and so forth. How is that possible? People as objects are have been and will be widely divergent in how appealing, attractive, pleasant, unpleasant they are. That's going to be on for the long term. But as we see with each of the four measurables, the point here is not to look at other people as objects, but rather as subjects. And then we say, yeah, but subject, but this person is very mean, and this person is hostile, and this person is eric, and this person is benevolent, this person is generous. Subjectively, too, there's a tremendous variety. So how, sh- how can I look at them evenly? They're not even. They're not equal. Some people from the inside, subjectively, really benevolent. Others, really malevolent. So where's the evenness here? How can I respond evenly to a reality that is uneven? Not a bad question, is it? And the answer is look deeper. Look deeper. Because all these appearances come and go, and mental afflictions come and go. And until one achieves the path, virtues come and go. Achieve the path, you actually have something irreversible. Until then, it's come and go. It's come and go from lifetime to lifetime. Who can say? There was one lama highly regarded by his students. They thought he was great, great lama. He died. And so one of his students was very keen to uh, find the tuku of their lama. So he sought out another great lama, clairvoyant lama. He said, Lama, can you help us? We're looking for the tuku of our lama. And the lama said, never mind, never mind. Give it up, never, give it a rest, never mind. And the student said, oh, no, 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 we need to find the tuku. We need to find the tuku of our lama. He's a great lama. We need to find him. Persisted, persisted. Finally, the clairvoyant lama said, if you insist, come with me. They went out to a pasture where there's some... Yaks grazing. He said, call out the name of your lama. And the student did. And one of the yaks went. (laughs) 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 You've just found your lama. Ethics was not quite what it could have been. Lama last time, yak this time. So I told you. Not no path. So next lifetime, who knows? So with all the variations, all the how can we respond evenly to an uneven reality of the objective and the subjective reality of other people? <coughs> the answer is look deeper. Look deeper until you find someone who is fundamentally like yourself. Look deeper until you find the common ground. And whether you're looking at a mass murderer or you're looking at a tremendous bodhisattva, look deep enough that you can see with a, with a great bodhisattva, yes, I found the common ground. I'm not a great bodhisattva, he is, but I found common ground. I found, yes, like me, so for you. And with a mass murderer, no, I'm not a mass murderer either. I'm not a great bodhisattva. I'm not a mass murderer either. But I've just, as I tend to one, I've now found the common ground. You have to look that deep. And if only if you find that deep can you really develop the equanimity. And what's that deep? All sentient beings wish to be free of suffering. Everyone wants to find happiness. And in a way, we're doing our best. The mass murderer is doing his best. Because he's got some idea. This is really going to be for the good. 
It looked bad, I know. But when all is said and done, you'll see that this really was necessary. And it's going to turn out well. And that goes for everything else. People have an inconceivability to justify whatever they're doing and think this is going to be for the good, at least my good. This is going to bring me happiness, at least, or my nation, or my political party, or my religion, or what have you. The ingenuity of delusion staggers the imagination. But look for the common ground. And then go into samadhi on that common ground. For myself, so for you. We're brothers, we're sisters. We're the same. Each of us here, wishing to be free of suffering and doing our best with our intelligence, imagination, and so forth, and the degree of delusion that we have, doing our best to overcome suffering and thinking we've identified the causes and trying to overcome them, seeking happiness, thinking we've identified the causes and pursuing happiness, like myself, so for you. And now may you, like myself, whoever you are, it's the whole spectrum, the whole bandwidth. May you, like myself, be free of suffering and its causes. May you, like myself, find happiness and its causes. So let's practice. Settle your body, speech, and mind in the natural state. Relaxed, still, and clear. For a little while, release the turbulence, the energy behind the rumination of the mind. Releasing with every outbreath, relaxing and calming the discursive mind. Now with your eyes open or closed as you wish, direct your attention to the space of the mind and whatever images, thoughts, and so on arise within that domain. As you allow your mind to settle in its natural state,
many years ago when I asked one of my lamas, when we seek to cultivate loving kindness and compassion for all sentient beings, how shall I understand all sentient beings? It seems inconceivable. And his response was, every sentient being you encounter, whether physically or those who simply come to mind, that will do. This is representative of all sentient beings. So now as you attend to the space of the mind, relax, release control over the contents of the mind. And simply watch who comes, who comes to mind. And instead of continuing in the practice, the shamatha practice of simply observing mental events as mental events, when a person comes to mind, which is to say a mental image, a thought, a memory, to use that mental image as a means to direct your attention to the person, him or herself, whoever it may be, Attend closely with sustained thought, with careful investigation. Attending closely until you find the common ground. You find someone just like yourself. with this spirit of loving kindness and compassion. As you attend single-pointedly to this individual, with each in-breath, arouse the yearning and the aspiration. May you, like myself, be free of suffering and the causes of suffering. Just as I wish to be free, so do you. And with each in-breath, imagine the darkness of this person's suffering and its underlying causes, its true causes, not merely the cooperative conditions. Imagine the suffering and its causes in the form of a darkness converging in upon your heart, this radiant orb of light at your heart. Draw it in there and let it be extinguished without trace. Do not take on the burden, but rather dissolve it into this immeasurable source of light at your own heart. With each in-breath, arouse a spirit of compassion. Each in-breath, imagine this person becoming free, the darkness vanishing. With each outbreath, arouse this yearning of loving kindness, the aspiration may you, like myself, find happiness, hedonic and genuine happiness, and its underlying causes. 
With each out-breath, imagine a flow of light, radiant, pure, luminous, embracing and suffusing this person and fulfilling his or her own innermost desire. Imagine this person being well and happy. Allow the appearance of this person to dissolve back into the space of your mind. Let your awareness be loose and free. And see who else spontaneously comes to mind. Do so for the remainder of the session. Following the previous practice.
And now let's alter the practice with each in-breath, if you will. Imagine the light of blessing, of loving-kindness, compassion, of wisdom, of all the awakened ones in all the directions, in the form of radiant white, pure light, converging in upon your own being, utterly filling, saturating you with this light of blessing. With every in-breath, draw in this light so that you're filled to the brim with every outbreath, breathe out the same light of loving kindness and compassion imbued with wisdom in all directions, evenly, excluding no one. As the light flows in upon your own body, imagine it purifying all illness, all obscurations, all hindrances that obstruct you on your path. Imagine total purification of your body and mind with each in-breath. And breathe out this aspiration with every exhalation. Now release all appearances, all aspirations, and all, all objects of mind. And let your awareness utterly come to rest in its own place, holding its own ground, illuminating and knowing its own nature. Enjoy your day. Let pretty begin today. No reason to wait.